All right, we are lit, good sir. What up, what up, what up? Welcome back to another episode of Cultivated Ignorance. I am Will, the host. I am Mike, the favorite host. But nobody cares about that. Today we are joined by an amazing author. <laughs> uh, we are joined by an amazing author, the author of the book, Afro-Pessimism, Mr. Frank Wilderson. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing just fine. Thank you. How are you two doing? Excellent. Excellent and excited. Super excited, yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, man, we we are going to be talking about your book today. Uh, extremely interesting, uh, the theories, the writing of it. Um, I was a little scared. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but no, nah, it was it was it was good all around. Uh, yeah, and the the theories are really what we're going to be talking about in it today. Nice. Um, so yeah, but first, as always. We want to uh, take a little bit of time to oh shoot shout out shout out our Patreon. Was uh, I supposed because, to put that up? You got it <laughs> because we are broke. Yeah, I got it. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, we're gonna shout out our if I can spell. Um, I was getting that. Yeah, we like Will said we broke out here. We both got ten kids each, ten baby mamas each. Um, it's hard times. Any money <laughs> we get from this Patreon is the only money that's gonna feed our kids. So if y'all don't subscribe to the Patreon, babies ain't gonna eat. We so. broke broke out here. Yeah, exactly. So, Patreon.com. Patreon website decides to come up. What? Oh, I was trying to, I was trying to give you some little space, man. I tried, man. It's broke. Oh, it's not. Oh, Lord, it's broke for real. <laughs> well, we don't stop sharing that screen. Um, Let me try right. Patreon.com slash cultivated ignorance. Yeah. Uh, we got amazing things on there. Uh, exclusive uh, things, interviews. We did a re very revealing episode with Ooh, uh, <laughs> uh, psychologists who broke us down to the nitty gritty. <laughs> um, amazing, uh, just just dope stuff. We're gonna be doing more cool stuff on there too. So, also, Will's daughter just pitched her whole business to me on the last. Oh, yeah. My, <laughs> it was my kid gave a whole business plan and everything on there. So. I got my products, but you know we're gonna we discuss that later. Whatever. Um, hey man, you know, you know it's black business, man. You know we got a little delays. <laughs> That's right. But yeah, man. Um, Patreon.com says cultivate ignorance. Please check us out. But yeah, on to today's show. Like I said, Mr. Frank Wilderson. So happy to be here. Um, for those that don't know you, because I think our audience will be really much in the dark about Afro pessimism. Uh, could you tell a little bit about yourself and just the general concept of Afro pessimism for those that don't know? Well, how much about myself do you want to know? And I'm, I'm also interested in uh, what Brother Man said here about being scared. About <laughs> Are you going to tell you? Perhaps yeah. I'm scared, you know? <laughs> so do you go by Will or William? I, I go by Will. Will is fine. Okay, so I, I want to know what Will has to say about about fear. Maybe we share the same, the same fear. Maybe so, maybe so. But yeah, just a little bit. I mean, I know we don't have a whole lot of time, but how much you want to share? Um. Well, uh, it, let me say a bit about myself in relation to uh, the book. So I basically have two hats. Uh, one is I write uh, critical theory, which is um, I have a, a PhD in, 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 in rhetoric. So that's like continental theory. Um, it's um, sometimes highly abstract. It's it's critical race theory, but it's not what the right is calling critical race theory. Uh, and so at the, at the base of, of training in critical race theory, one goes through learning psychoanalysis uh, and learning the uh, fundamentals of, of Marxism from Das Kapital, and then building an analysis of, of cultural objects like film or political movements 
based on that kind of theoretical intervention. And so Afro-pessimism has moved through that, you know, I, I was trained in that, but it has then like whiplash, like a boomerang back against those theories to actually critique their capacity to fully explain black suffering. So that's that's one kind of hat that I that I wear is it's a kind of formal training in, in what's called a PhD in, in rhetoric from UC Berkeley. And another hat is a formal training in um, creative writing with a particular emphasis in, in fiction. I did a master's in fine arts at Columbia University from 1989 to, to 1991. So those those are the two kinds of loves of my life. And, and uh, although I have no formal training, in uh, poetry except for, uh, well, some formal training. I took classes at a place called The Loft back in the 1970s and, and 80s, a literary center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I've written, a bit, published a bit of poetry. Um, as an activist, you know, I'm, at the age of 12, 13, 14, 15, I was deeply uh, tutored by uh, people who were in Students for Democratic Society, SDS, and, and, and later they became like Weather, Weather Underground and uh, after school school at the Black Panthers office. Um, I also spent, as you will find out in the book, five and a half years in apartheid South Africa as the second Black American to hold elected office in the ANC. And I worked in the underground uh, as well. So that's kind of my background, my training. Uh, there's a lot more to it, but that's those, those are the inflections of that that you'll find in the book. Right now I hold a position uh, which is called the uh, Chancellor's Professor of African American Studies at the University of California, Berkeley. And for three years up until July 1st of, of 2021, right now, I was also Chair of African American Studies at, sorry, UC Irvine is where I teach. My degree is from UC Berkeley. Okay, so that's me. You asked about Afro-pessimism also? Is that what you asked? Yes, yes. On its face, I guess you could say, on its face, what is Afro-pessimism and what does it touch on that you feel like the other theories miss on? Well, Afro-pessimism aspires to a kind of generalization in the way that all theory aspires to generalization. So if people are in the streets who are, are agitating for, for rights, whether they're reformist rights or agitating for revolution, whether it's the overturning of a paradigm, sometimes those people are side by side marching in the same uh, uh, formation, um, but with different kind of agendas for the end goal. But what they might, what they typically share, and they typically share this intuitively. In other words, they typically, most activists don't have a kind of cognitive map of this thing that they share. And this, what they share is a cognitive map of what is the essential nature of suffering. In other words, if we were to address and redress this one particular problem, uh, what is the one particular problem that would solve the suffering of the world at large? And so by and large, even if people have not read Marx, most people in political formations believe that, th that the essential nature of suffering is the economic division between the haves and the have-nots and people accumulate capital and the people who are exploited for for wages okay that's that's where 90 percent of people are who are activists center their sense of what is wrong with the world now another i would say maybe 10 percent center their sense of what is wrong with the world in, in the formation of patriarchy which is to say that if if both types of activists were to look at bank of america and say bank of america is an unethical exploitative institution all banks are one would one would would you would trace the way one type of person talks about that back to the assumptive logic of psychoanalysis which would say that the institutions function as a family and families are inherently unethical because of the power dynamics that that allow for patriarchy to exist and uh women children and non-gender conforming people to be at the bottom. And they would say, I see mapped onto Bank of America a patriarchal formation. And so to destroy the patriarchal formation, which is to say the Oedipus complex, which formally organizes the nuclear family, would be to destroy the, the, the political economy. But then you have the Marxists over here and say, no, 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 no. That's all important. But what is essential is the division between the poor 
and the rich. And if you destroy the wage relation, then you can destroy the, the capitalist uh, paradigm and you will be on the precipice of a whole new world. And we are saying that's not wrong, but that is inadequate to thinking, and here, this is the important point of Afro-pessimism, to thinking the essential nature of black suffering, not the total nature of black suffering, because most black people are poor. And so most black people suffer economic deprivation. But if you were to, you know, ha having traveled through the Soviet Union in the 1970s, having traveled to Cuba in the 1990s, um, what I've seen is that if you were to actually get a, a highly egalitarian social economic formation, you would still have anti-black racism as the kernel, as the as the central ingredient that overdetermines the world. And so what we have actually argued is that um, neither Marx as a archive of texts that explain suffering, nor Lacan or Freud as an archive of texts that explain suffering leading back to patriarchy. Neither of those have begun to have begun to actually understand what it means to be a slave. What does it mean to be a slave? And that everyone except for Orlando Patterson, who comes along in 1982, everyone before Orlando Patterson has tried to explain what it means to be a slave by giving us reports on what happens to people in slavery. They get whipped, they're in chains, they pick cotton, they chop sugarcane, they harvest tobacco. And that's experience. That's not the relational dynamic. And so what we're saying is that the relational dynamic of slavery is like no other dynamic in the world. And that is, and so our critique, so Afro-pessimism is not an emotional dispensation of sad people. Afro-pessimism is a pessimism of the intellect. In other words, a pessimism of the capacity for social movements to adequately explain what it means to suffer as a Black person. And it's also pessimistic of the intellectual production of Black scholars who think that Blackness can be incorporated into humanness. We would argue that humanness gets its understanding of what it is and who it is in contradistinction to Blackness. And so that, we can go deeper into this, uh, but that is in the nutshell. Afro-pessimism is a meta-critique. It is a critique of the revolutionary critiques saying, y'all go a long ways, but you don't go far enough to say, what does it mean to suffer as a Black person? And I think like, I mean, you just said a mouthful, but I think one of the biggest things I think people have who, who learn about Afro-pessimism, the hardest thing to grapple with is how you talk about how, you know, the suffering is not just coming from white people. It's also from like people of color who you've called like junior partners. Yes. Uh, can you kind of elaborate on how they kind of participate in that? And stuff like, why? Well, the, 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 I mean, people object to the, um, uh, how would I put it, the, the seeming sarcasm of the phrase uh, junior partner. And, you know, our our goal in, in writing as Afro-pessimists is not to reach out emotionally across the aisle and say, let us give you all the, you people of color and, and, and white people, let us give you this analysis in a kind of uh, emotional way that you can take in and accept. No, I'm only writing from and to blackness, okay? And I'm and my energy is writing from and to blackness. And so if anyone else can't, if anyone thinks, oh, this is harsh, you know, you call me a junior partner, you know, uh, maybe you could tone it down a bit, you know? I'm saying that my the whole goal is to, is to, um, is to animate and to capture the imagination of Black people at their best. In other words, Black people who don't give a rat's ass what other people are thinking about what they're saying, Black people talking privately to each other as though there's no one else, else around. And so the term junior partner uh, might seem uh, a little harsh, but I don't really care how it seems, okay? There's an analysis behind it. It's not just name calling. What I'm suggesting is that people who are not Black suffer from white supremacy in particular ways, and they are positioned as the perpetuate, perpetuators of anti-Blackness. Two things happen at the same time in one colored body, a suffering of white supremacist violence and oppression and an agency of anti-Blackness, okay? And I've experienced that 
that so that someone comes crosses the Rio Grande and finds themselves in, in East LA and the same bullet that kills a black person in Compton is going to kill them, but it's not coming from the same structure of violence. That's what we're arguing. We're arguing that people of color who are not black are positioned somewhere else in a paradigm of oppression that is not that cannot be reconciled with the black with the anti-black paradigm of oppression and and we use these two words contingency and gratuitous in other words people of color who are not black suffer lynching police brutality killing discrimination based upon a contingent real or imagined projection of them having transgressed something in the, some rules of the symbolic order the important point so let me repeat that because i went by a little bit fast people of color suffer white supremacy which is a form of contingent violence violence that is predicated on a transgression a trigger something goes wrong something is some, a white gaze puts on a person of color uh, a guilt of having done something wrong, which real or imagine, there is a linguistic coherence to that. But my point is for Afro-pessimism, the black flesh, black, taking this word from Hortense Spillers at Vanderbilt, black flesh does not suffer violence based upon transgression. That's why it's so hard to raise a black child because you can't tell a black child what he, she, or they can do to avoid anti-black violence. Our theory is that anti-black violence is a necessary ensemble of rituals that heal the psyche of all others. It is not based upon black people acting or cracking out of turn. And that, and so junior partner means that you as a non-black, non-white person of color are positioned in a place where the structure of violence responds to you, organizes your life, and positions you in a way that is completely different the way that the structure of violence responds to, organizes, and positions Black people. Now, you can do something about that by, by coming over to Blackness and being against the world, as opposed to being against discriminatory actions in the world, and you can act against your junior partner position but most people don't do that. Most people are actually trying to get something out of this world, a world that only exists because it is forever, entrance into it is forever foreclosed to blackness. In other words, you look at high school kids and they know how to move in a high school. They know that if I am Asian or Latinx or Samoan, okay, I got something, I got trouble with the pigs. But if I hang black, I got gratuitous trouble with the pigs, like endless trouble, okay? So that's a, this is the unconscious of racialization that exists in everyone. And, and, I, and, I, and, see, and people who don't like that term, junior partner, don't like it for sentimental reasons. I have not heard an analytic argument that says this is actually incorrect. I've only heard, I don't feel good about that. Well, you know what? I don't feel good about nothing, so tough. Well, I would definitely love for you to comment here because I was wondering, like, which part of this is what you kind of like makes you scared, like, or which kind of this kind you kind of like struggle with. Like, what do you, what do you feel? After he broke it down, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, the I guess this and uh, it's I think it for me it's also disturbing being brought up with the the idea that's been given to me by my mother my father everybody around me that there that i can actually position myself better in life um this and for for them i guess it's only monetarily <clears throat> but in actuality i'm still positioned no matter how successful i am in a spot that doesn't I guess, give me the full rights of others, or I'll always be seen in a different light, whatever. You know what I mean? I do. I do. It's, it's just a harsh reality to deal with in, at the end of the day. Yeah. And, and, and for me, too. I mean, it's like uh, Jared Sexton, who's who actually, you know, 
start this by saying to us in a reading group in 1999, let's read Sadia Hartman, and then let's read uh, Hortense Spillers, and then let's read David Marriott's book on Black men all together. Not so much to see what they're trying to say, but to see what is the foundation of their arguments. And when we, when we looked at the foundation of their arguments, we're like, whoa, what they're saying is precisely what Fanon could not, what Fanon gave us in Black Skin, White Mask, even though he couldn't totally grasp it because he's, because Fanon is a humanist trying to say there's some way for the racists to come, come together. But ultimately Fanon tells us this thing that the Black doesn't enter the room ever as William Patterson. The Black doesn't enter the room ever as Mike Murray. The Black doesn't ever enter the room as Frank Wilderson. The Black enters the room with this amago in front of him, her, or them. In other words, the mind receiving your entrance cannot ever take you as an individual. It only takes you as an amago, an image that is either a hyperbolic threat to its existence or, an, or an, an orgasmic gateway to a kind of sexual joy that blows its mind away. But there's never anything in between in the collective unconscious for the Black. And that's what our parents, that's why, you know, in undergraduate, I say, you know, don't, don't tell me what your parents say. There's, I do not allow parental wisdom in my classroom, okay? Because <laughs> your parents are trying to keep you alive, okay? <laughs> I'm trying to help you get a nervous breakdown so that you look into the abyss, you know? So your parents tell you all kinds of shit, you know, just to keep you, so that you don't get shot, you know? But if you want to deal with this, then we're going to have to face the fact, like Justice Taney said in about 1853 in the Dred Scott decision, only the Native American, the Native American is the lowest form of human being and he can evolve into the exalted form of human being if he learns our ways. But the black is not a human. The black is not a subject of relationality. The black is a thing that we own. And look, coming from South Carolina, okay? I mean, that's, that's one of the places where it all started. You know what I'm saying? It's like, you know. Wait, you gotta what... come on here and put, put us on blast like that. Like, we know we the reddest of all red states, okay? Like, we know it. <laughs> you know, South Carolina put it out there. You know, it was like South Carolina and Virginia said, these are not human entities. These are objects of our possession. These are expect, these are our third arms. These are extensions of our prerogative. And Afro-pessimism is arguing that that is the place of blackness in the collective unconscious, even today, even though the laws have changed. And so we are faced with a situation in which, um, in which it is absolutely necessary for us to be exiled from this thing called the human, because if we were to become part of this idea of the human, then what the, would the human have any meaning? Cat is what it is, C-A-T, because it is not D-O-G. That's how meaning is developed through anti-blackness. And I was shocked to see that this was actually still the case in the country that I love the most when I spent six weeks in Cuba, a country where it is constitutionally illegal to think like this, but it is the fiber of the collective unconscious in the country, nonetheless. No, everything you're saying is so surreal because even if you don't agree with Afro-pessimism, right? I feel like I don't know too many black people who are completely honest with themselves, who don't know that feeling of entering that room full of like white eyes and immediately feeling what you just described, like that, oh shit, it might be, <laughs> It's so so dramatic. It could be like, oh shit, it's a black dude, or like, hey, it's a black dude. It yes. could be yes. <laughs> it's those two things. Yeah. And every black person knows that feeling, but like because it's so ingrained in society, it's really hard to call it out when it's not blatant, when it's not, you know, explicit. So it's like it's like, damn, yo, like we know what we're talking about, but how do we get people to understand it without having Frank Wilderson in the room to fully explain it. You know what I mean? Like, well, I, I would say that Frank Wilderson didn't fully explain it. 
I would say that the Afro-pessimism is like this big ear trumpet that started listening to the things Black people were saying but felt they couldn't say publicly, and then putting that all together like a collage, right? You know, so I, I fundamentally believe that it's 625 AD, from 625 AD to the time the Portuguese rocked up, right? So East Africa, the Moroccan Jews, the, the uh, Arabs, the Iranians, the Chinese, the Iraqis, right? They all vamped on East Africa and started harvesting bodies. And as they started harvesting these bodies, they also were beginning to develop their own cultural and, and filial family and political identities. And so the, 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 there's a symbiosis between this thousand years of the destruction of the African body and the building up of these other institutions. I think that the first Africans being harvested by these people who are becoming something, becoming Saudis, becoming Iranians, becoming Chinese, becoming Iraqis. I think the Africans were understanding that, whoa, the destruction of our cosmological order, our gods, our, our burial sites, our sexuality. You know, they were, they were, they were, they were the, 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 you know, the, the codes of sex between married people and unmarried people in the Arab world were, there's a, there's an energy that had to be, if, if you say these are the sex acts that you can only have when someone is married and not beforehand, this, this, this licentious energy had to find destinations somewhere else. And that's the black woman, right? And then the black man was done with something that was called leveling at the scrotum in which the penis, the genitals were all cut off and they would scrape the pelvic bone clean and march these boys 13 to 25 from what is now Kenya, you know, and Uganda to the sea. And those that did not bleed to death, death would cross over into Arabia and become eunuchs in harems. You know, all this destruction of reproductive organs and reproductive capacity was happening in tandem with the accentuation and the elevation of reproductive organs and reproductive capacity and, and family organization in the Arab world. You see, these two things were linked. They were linked. And I believe that those people were Afro-pessimists. They were, they were able to see that for, the, for this world to exist and grow and know itself, there's a relationship to its destruction of us at the same time, which is both are necessary. So all I'm saying is that what we did is we came along and we said, look, let's codify this. Let's put it into books and, and, and theoretical, give a theoretical organization what Black people are saying but afraid to say to themselves or afraid to say in public and say to hell with anyone who doesn't like it and get it out there. I think that we secured a mandate. I don't think we created something from the top down. I think that you two and your comrades and brothers and sisters have been saying this for ages in bits and pieces and things like, well, can I really say that? Ooh, can I say it? No, I can't say that. No, I can't. Yeah, yes, we can, okay? And now it's in a bunch of books. <laughs> exactly. So. And I want I want to know Will's thoughts on this too because um I never really I just realized we don't really talk about Black Lives Matter that much on the show, um, uh so being someone who is anti-voting, right Frank? You're anti-voting, correct? You're anti-America, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I I say I'm not against the police. I'm, sorry, I'm not against police brutality. I'm against the police. Right, you know right. Who's <laughs> <laughs> like anti-America, right? But can still see the significance on like someone like your mom believing in Barack Obama when he was elected, and we all know we was all. Well, I don't know Frank. We was been a revolution for a long time. So I don't know if he was on board. But me and Will talk about all the time how we was all with Obama both terms when he got reelected. What we was? <laughs> I didn't care what he was talking about. I just knew he was black. <laughs> he was like black men in office. Sign me up. <laughs> But uh, you can still see the significance of your mom having hope in that. And I've, I mean, learning all this stuff now, like I still struggle with that one mom and Joe Biden, like my mom can't get enough of Uncle Biden, Uncle Biden. And I'm like, oh, golly. <laughs> so <laughs> that, but you know, that being that as it is, um, what, what value do you see in massive reformist movements like Black Lives Matter? Like, do you think they're actually creating a, a change for the better or is it kind of like, uh, here you go with the same song and dance. Like, what do you think? I think it's both. And this is what I mean by what I think it's both. When I say, I think it's both. Um, 
Jared Sexton, who who I encourage, especially I, I encourage people who are who are who want to understand why the sentence "I'm not just black, my mom is white, my daddy's black, I'm both." You know why why that sentence is an anti-black sentence. I would encourage people to read uh, another Afro pessimist, Jared Sexton, who works with me at UC Irvine, his book "Amalgamation Schemes," in which he writes about that. You know, and he said something many years ago when we were first trying to um, put this into a theoretical framework. He said, I will always be in the streets with black people agitating for the vote. And when we get the vote, I will never go to the polls, you know? So, <laughs> so, what, so what is the takeaway from that? The takeaway from that is that black movement is always an opportunity for communing with other black people, for organizing, for heightening the contradictions and for opening spaces like the space that we are sharing, the three of us are sharing right here now to deepen our, to deepen our analysis. Because, you know, if, if for no other reason, which is, which is as a footnote, which is precisely why uh, whenever Black Lives Matter entities ask me to come and do Afro-pessimist workshops, I always go. You know, and and I talk about in these workshops. I talk about you know, um, we are even if you think that the horizon of liberation is the end of the filibuster, or a better voting rights law, you know, or Joe Biden in the White House, or Barack Obama in the White House, and I think the horizon of liberation is the end of the United States and the and the end of of capacity as we know it. Even if we differ on that, here's the deal: just like a fascist skinhead working in a factory and an anarchist on the same assembly line in the factory next to him. Both of them suffer capitalist exploitation in the same way, okay? And so all Black people suffer anti-Black gratuitous violence and social death in the same way, even if we have a hundred different ideas about what's going on and what it takes to get to, to make to make life better. And so I think that that, that anytime black people come together, that's an opportunity for Afro-pessimists to enter into that space and broaden the conversation beyond the stated goals to a, a dialogue about how, about how it is that we suffer and how when we get these stated goals, they're gonna be taken away from us in another 10 years, you know, that we are not agents of politics. We are, objects of other people's political agendas. We are refugees in other people's political desires and projects. We are the widgets that they use to mobilize what they want. And sometimes when they get their shit, life improves for us a little bit, you know? But we ought to be aware that when they decide it's time to vamp on us again, you know, they'll come get us just like, just like the KKK, you know. We don't have any friends. We don't have any allies, okay? Um, we just have people who use us in particular ways, and sometimes the way they use us will give us a better paycheck. Sometimes the way they use us will get us public housing. Sometimes the way they use us, you know, uh, will, will, will get us more food, you know. But we would be remiss to be thinking that we are agents of hegemony. And that's what Obama never understood. He was like a glass of Ovaltine, you know, where you pour it in and you just stir it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know? Obama, this is on the podcast. <laughs> and, and the way I know that is because right around the corner from you up at Duke, uh, I'm sorry, non I'm blank on this person. There's a Brazilian sociologist who wrote a book about how Obama was created. And the Blue Dog Democrats said, we got a problem. We got a problem. The problem is that so many people in the Congressional Black Caucus are from the Southern, Southern Christian Leadership Conference. They come through King. We had a problem in 1984 when Jesse Jackson almost stole the show at the convention. We can't go through that again, number one. We cannot afford and they were calling these, they were calling these radicals. I don't even call the Congressional Black Caucus the Jesse Jackson radicals. They were like, the radicals are gonna take over the Democratic Party, you know. We can't afford for that to happen, number one. Number two, we can't win unless 90% of the black people go to the polls. So how do we keep black votes and keep those SCL SCLC people from gaining hegemony like 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 
like Jackson almost did in 1984. How do we, how do we get a black face, get black votes, but not have black agency? And and Vernon Jordan, you know, there's always a Negro willing to help, right? <laughs> you can find him. You know, kind of the sprinkled up the country. You can find him. You can find him anywhere. Always find a Negro willing to help. You know, Vernon Jordan said, "I got your mess," you know, and he said. <laughs> And he said, there's this little dude over here in the state legislature in, in Illinois. And uh, I think if we pour money into him and put him up on a stage, we can have someone who's black, who shame black people for being too radical, who will do our bidding, who can get elected, who can soothe, who can be, who can be that person that, that you just talked about, Mike, who walks in the room and says, oh, a black guy in the room, as opposed to, you know, Hugh P. Newton, a black guy in the room, you know? And <laughs> We can then cut this, the, the credential black caucus at the knees, keep the black vote, and have our white agenda moving forward. And they said, how do you know he's, you know, the blue dog said, how do you know he's our, our dude? He said, because there's a former Black Panther in the state legislature named Bobby Rush, who was Fred Hampton's right-hand man. And Bobby, and he, he's the kind of Black dude who will go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Bobby Rush when Bobby Rush is trying to put forward really progressive, you know, he will do, he will do like, like NWA says in their, in their song, Fuck the Police, you know, the Black cop shows up, for, shows out for the white cop. He shows out on Bobby Rush in the state legislature so we can, you know, he can stand up, you know, and he's got a white mama, you know, what more do you want? Okay. And mm -hmm. so, <laughs> they, this is all documented. They bought Obama, from the late legislature to a penthouse in New York, and they said, talk Negro, you know, our doors and cocktails. They shot him a bunch of questions and he talked all night long. And when he got done, they said, this is our dude, okay? Poured a ton of money into him. He ran for state, for for, for the Senate. And we you know, as a junior Senator, given a, a, a speech at the, at, the, at the convention, you know, and next thing you know, he's president. He is a creation of white desire. He's not an agent of black liberation, okay? And and the reason that he's able to, to mobilize and, be, and emerge is precisely because of what we're talking about, gratuitous violence, the, the fact that COINTELPRO had killed so many black people who had secured a mandate, then there was a vacuum left for white money and white power to create the Negro that they needed. This is all so dark, sir. I'm gonna be very honest with you. <laughs> well, I feel like this is speaking to the like the inner revolutionary inside you, because you know you've been fed up with the Democrats for a while now. Oh, I yeah, I don't. Golly, them motherfuckers there. But um, it's one little footnote. I was the night before Obama was elected. I was at Brooklyn at Metairie's College, speaking to 80 people, and two only two were white. And, and, and it was the night before election, and, and I was given a, a, a talk, a, a reading from my book, Incognito, and my respondent was a black man from the uh, Democratic Party from the state legislature of New York. And this crowd said to me, who are you going to vote for tomorrow? And I said, look, I don't vote, number one. The, 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 the presidency is just a form of murder incorporated, okay? The, 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 whoever that president is, okay? It really doesn't matter. And it turned out to be true. And I said, have me back in four years and let's talk about, you know, the way he gets in by, by first he's got, a, he's, got, he's got to put a, a, a muzzle on his wife, uh, Michelle, from not cracking out a turn during the campaign, not being too black. Then he's got to distance himself from James Wright, you know, and distance himself from the Palestinians, distance himself from everybody else. Then he's got to talk about black men got to be better fathers and have more responsibility and all that stuff, you know. And then he's got to, you know, when, when the pigs vamp on Henry Louis State, bring the pig and Henry Louis State to the White House for a little chat, you know. He's got to do, he's got to make all those moves. And I said, but here's what I do dig about tonight. The fact that there's so much black joy in this room because we don't have any joy and i celebrate your joy and if he wins tomorrow i will celebrate your joy but i also know that he's going to do the bidding of the white state to um discipline y'all in ways that no black person can the way he disciplined bobby rush toe-to-toe -to -toe in the legislature mm. It's real, man. What were you about to say, Will? Uh, I would like to go back. Uh, a while ago, you said that 
despite our differences, uh, you know, we were talking about the Black Lives Matter and protesting and stuff. You said, despite our differences, uh, we still need to come together to, for, you know, such and such cause, just like the, the, uh, the white, I think you said KKK member and somebody else on the assembly line. Um, me, myself, I have, I don't say I have an issue with that, but Michael's posed to me the question that Christians should be going out for, uh, what was it, transphobic murders that were happening at that time, Mike? If you're, I think I said, like, if you're for all human life, then why aren't Christians, like, you know, going, I guess, protest or at least at least speaking on behalf of the, you know, up, uptick in trans, trans yeah. murders and stuff like that. Yes, yes, yes. And me being from the South and, you know, me being a Christian, I felt that it goes against you morally and religiously to, to do that. While you want to protect our life, like, I don't believe you should have to go out and protest um, against these things if it goes against, you know, what you believe is being right. Uh, what do you think about that? What exactly, let me clarify what I said before. Okay. That I asked you exactly what you're asking me. Um, so so I be, uh, what I said before is that if, if there is a um, assembly line and there's an anarchist who's against property and capital making the same widgets next to a KKK person who is just a widget for white supremacy and capitalism, that those two, I, I wasn't suggesting those two people should find a way to work together or come to understand each other. In fact, in, in, in reality, the, the anarchists will probably end up having to kill the, the KKK person because when it comes down to it, um, the, the KKK person will, will be mobilized by the interests of a class that are, that are against his own interests. What I, the only thing I was saying is that at the level of paradigm of structure, their bodies are suffering in the same way from capitalism. But the level of political movement and what they believe in the world, they couldn't agree on much. And so all I'm saying is that if I were to meet Condoleezza Rice or Colin Powell, I mean, I probably couldn't have a conversation with them. Um, but I would also recognize that um, even though they're wealthy and they're right wing, their wealth and their political agendas doesn't exempt them from anti-blackness that we are both positioned in the same place. I didn't, I wasn't suggesting that I should try to find common ground with them. Okay. I, I, there's a, I, I've tried to find common ground with what's called the movement for black lives. It's a big umbrella structure. Inside of that is one entity called Black Lives Matter. But there are other entities called Asada's Daughters in Chicago or Black Youth 100 Project in Chicago or, you know, there are many other entities in this big thing that's happening globally. And I've, and I've been fortunate to work with people in the movement for Black Lives in Vienna, in Berlin, in Bremen, Germany, in London, in Toronto, you know. And um, so I, I wouldn't say that, that I am down with the reformist agenda of Black Lives Matter. What I would say is that I am appreciative of some Black Lives Matter chapters who have said, I can't get with the end of the world, but this is really interesting. We're all reading this. So could you come here and do a workshop on it? You know, and and I will do that in a heartbeat for any black group that invites me. Um, so now come back to what you were saying, William, and maybe we can go from there. I, I, I misunderstood you. I, I was assuming you said that they had some sort of common ground. Um, but but Mike has challenged me on the fact that uh, I believe that two groups who who have, I guess, uh, they have their differences within the within the Black Lives Matter community, being transphobic, uh, people being murdered, that being their cause, and, you know, Black Christians who just, you know, want police brutality or whatever to stop, that Mike believes that they should protest with them or, I you know, stand well, up for them. In a well, way. Just to clarify, I'm not, I'm not saying that you have to protest. I'm not saying that you necessarily have to, you know, be on the front lines. I'm saying you can't, basically at the basis of what I'm saying is, for example, if you have somebody saying, um, I'm for Black Lives Matter, I'm for all Black people, but in that same breath, it's talking shit about 
you know, black LGBTQ plus people, you know what I mean? Then you're not really for all black life is what I'm saying. You don't necessarily have to be protesting on behalf of those people, but for you to just like not give a fuck about those people just shows, and that could be your spiel and that could be fine, but it just shows that you're not for all black life is what I'm saying. So my own position, uh, so what I said to you two first was that all black people are positioned in the same way. Yeah. In the same now we're talking about what do, what do different black people believe and what should they do yeah, or yeah, not? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and my I, you know my my view on that is is aligned with 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 Mike for very for 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 various reasons. And I'm going to state these reasons, but I also understand that to actually understand what I'm saying, it requires that if if you haven't done critical theory, I would encourage people to read my book because it's I think it's accessible to a general public, and then look at the back of my book where there are footnotes. There are no footnotes in the text. But anything that looks odd, you can turn to the back and you can see that it comes from maybe someone else's book. And I would, I would, I would, I think that one of the things that Afro-pessimism is arguing, this is a highly controversial point, but I think we can actually argue it very, very well, is that black people can think of themselves as having families, but black families cannot be recognized as relational entities by anyone else. What I'm trying to say is that we are always already on the auction block as things to be possessed, whether for joy or for or for pleasure or for or for or for or for hatred. And and I would I would my goal, and this is why I say I'm 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 aligned with what Mike is saying, is I would hope that we could all understand that um, the LGP, LGBT community of black people doesn't threaten black Christians, doesn't threaten black families. And I'm gonna say this is very controversial because there are no black families. Mm. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is that um, you are who you are, not because you say that, but because you say it and the rest of the world recognizes it, recognizes it as a kind of truth. There's a very interesting, and in that the truth of black relations is never, was never, and will never be recognized by the rest of the world. When Asada Shakur was shot on the turnpike in New Jersey, and she was brought into a hospital, and the, the police were beating her in her hospital bed, she said, I want to call my mother. And they were calling her all kinds of black bees and all kinds of black bees, right? And then they said a very interesting symptomatic gesture. Oh. So you got a mama, you know, which is precisely the gesture that happens on the auction block. I want my child to stay with me to go to this plantation. Oh, so you got a child, you know, South Carolina and North Carolina are the epicenter of the great churning under of the second intensification of slavery. In this period between 1800 and 1830 were 1 million black people between the ages of 15 and 22 were dragged from entities that they said were families. They said, we got families on these huge tobacco plantations. But And you can say that in your mind, and I'm not saying don't say it, but I'm saying you need to have a higher level of, of abstraction to understand that that doesn't communicate in the collective unconscious of anybody else. You are a tool, an entity to be extracted for whatever they need, whenever they need it. And that was a highly traumatic 30 years for people who were black on the Eastern seaboard because they had begun to think of themselves as having huge families of generations living together on these big tobacco kind of plantations and having filial relations. And the rest of the world said, we're gonna let y'all think that for about what, 1776 to 1800, but now we got another need, okay? We have a need to develop Georgia, develop Alabama, develop Mississippi, to develop Louisiana. And so we're gonna yank you from your filial connections as though you are what we say you are, which is objects of our possession. And we have to remember that that very same dynamic happened again in the 1980s to the 2000s called the intensification of the prison industrial complex 
and it happened to the same population. One million people between the ages of late teens and 25 churned under into chains to the point where now we got five, a million some black men in prison and five million under some other form of lockdown, ankle braces, halfway houses, going to prison on the weekend or coming or coming to prison at night. Female black population rate raising by 800% per year. In other words, we are still in chattel slavery, not just in imaginary slavery. And so for you to say, I have a special entity called my family that is heteronormative and it, and, and it is being threatened by the LGBT community that is black, I would just disagree with that. I would just disagree with that. I would, and I would try to find a way beyond that so that um, we all make common ground. This is where I, this is where my thinking is different than other people's thinking, even though our position is the same, that we all find common ground as blacks who suffer regardless of our sexual orientation. And the final thing I'll say, the most controversial thing is, I don't believe there's anything as such as a heteronormative person. I simply don't believe that. I think that, um, that, the, that, the, uh, that, the, that the psyche is divided into three realms. One is your pre-conscious, your conscious mind. The other is your unconscious. And unconscious desire, this is very controversial, but I think it's been proven in psychoanalysis. Unconscious desire cannot be organized based upon your conscious decision of your sexuality. What I'm trying to say is you could be a red-blooded American dude sitting in a movie theater saying, I only sleep with women. And all of a sudden you see John Wayne on a horse and thinking, woo, we wouldn't I love to get down with him. Okay, that's the force of your unconscious crashing through and then you start looking around and does anyone know I'm gay? You know, in other words, there's no such thing as a gay person. There's no such thing as a, as a straight person. The unconscious is, this is a psychoanalytic term. The unconscious is polymorphously perverse. Perverse, I don't mean negative, polymorphously perverse. In other words, I think that sexual desire is without a structure. And so when you try to say, I have a structure based on heteronormativity, or I have a structure based on gayness, you're only talking about part of your psyche. And the other part is completely disorganized and open to all kinds of possibilities, which might embarrass you, depending upon where, where you think you're coming from. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Hey, that, that's very controversial. I'm still trying to sort through that. I've never heard you say that before. I need to sort through that a little bit more because, and I don't, I don't want to waste too much time. I know we only got about 10 minutes, but like, because I'm a firm believer that you can, even if there's only one part of your mind, like if one if a person decides, well, not decides, but has only been attracted to men and, you know, male energy their whole lives and that remains that way their entire life, like wouldn't that mean that they're straight? No, I, what I, it would mean that the conscious realm of their mind is straight. The unconscious realm of one's mind is, to use this word, diverse. And not only that, but inaccessible to the conscious part of your mind. And this, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm boiling a lot of psychoanalytic training and thought into you know, a short conversation here. But one of the things that that I believe has been fundamentally proven is that an entity is born and comes out of the womb. And the entity only becomes a subject of relations after about 18 months. And in that period, the 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 the, the entity, this is this is in, in French, it's called an infance, is being sexually organized by the family, the way the, the mother washes the baby, the way, the way power in the family is structured. But that sexual organization is part of the conscious being. There's always a part of the sexuality which remains unorganized by the governing logic of the family. Let me repeat that. There's always a part of the psyche that remains unorganized by the governing logic of the family. And that part of the psyche that remains unorganized is like this internal engine inside of you that you may never access in a performative way. I'm not saying that that you, if you're straight, you'll ever sleep with a, a man, or if you're gay, you'll ever sleep with a woman. I'm saying 
it's there, it's part of you. It's like a dormant volcano waiting to erupt even if it never does. What I'm trying to say is that what you say about yourself is at best only one third of who you are. I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. That, listen, and we, I think we got time for one more question. I would love to have you back on because this is getting like all over the place. And I like, <laughs> I love all the spaces because that's, I think a lot of people have a lot to say about that <laughs> for sure. But that's very interesting. That's very interesting. Um, so one last question. Um, I'm sure you've gotten plenty of, I mean, you, you depicted in the book all the criticisms you've gotten about Afro-pessimism and presented it to different people, especially white people. Um, I was going to ask you, because I even heard you reference some Horton Spillers earlier and uh, who you reference in your book as well. Um, I even saw her kind of have this kind of critique, kind of question of, say we were to, you know, admit that, you know, blackness is a constant state of social death. What is the point of us recognizing that? Like, what can we, how can we use that for anything other than death and despair? Like, I think that's a false question. Um, I love Hortense Spillers, and, and I try not to um, debate, you know, in absentee of Black intellectuals, you know, but, but, but I, I would just say that, that Afro-pessimism is a diagnostic lens. It tells you there's a cancer. It doesn't say, how do you deal with the cancer? And I think it's, I think the power of understanding is value in and of itself. I think that the that the shortcoming of being educated in the Anglo-American world, in other words, the shortcoming of having been educated in England, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the United States, in these places, the shortcoming is that you have been brought up to encounter, we have been brought up to encounter problems and automatically pose solutions in the same breath. And what it means is that the emotional capacity of intellectuals in the Anglo-American tradition to look into the abyss, to encounter problems for which there are no coherent solutions is rather limited. And we're trying to expand that. We, we actually, we have a pessimism of the intellect to quote Antonio Gramsci, a pessimism of these intellectual cognitive maps that seeks to say that all suffering is about capitalism, of all suffering is about patriarchy, but we have an optimism of the will, which is to say that we have presented a cancer. We have not presented a cure. We have heard things like you just said about Hortense Spillers, people come back to us with sentimental objections, which is to say what I respect Will having said when we first came on, this scares me. You know what? It scares me too. Okay. But that's not an analytic response. That's an emotional response. And so what we're, what, what we're saying is that um, the power of understanding is value in and of itself, number one. And we fundamentally believe that Black people in the streets will work out the solution. We're not here to bring the solution. We're here to say, here's what we are taking from the shards and the, and the fragments of black speech at its best. And here's how we put it together, okay? And we fundamentally believe that black movement will address this problem and bring about the, the end of this world as we, as we, as we know it. We are on, to, uh, on the precipice of a new epistemological dispensation. So I think that we have to mature and get to a point as black thinkers and as black revolutionaries where we where where we understand something that only tends to hit us when we're teenagers and then when we're very old and this thing that hits us when we're teenagers when we're very old is like damn what's the point and we and in between that time we spend our times as adults trying to uh police the teenager who just wants to do a nat turner on the world I said, now y'all got to channel that energy into something positive, okay? <laughs> yes, let's 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 think about how we can build something. Don't always tear something down, you know, where the world has torn down everything about us, you know. And so, and then when we get old, we're like, what was my professional life all about? 
you know, I was nothing but a nigger all the way through. And then you die bitter and angry like James Baldwin in The Evidence of Things Not Seen, right? And so we're saying, let's get bitter and angry in midlife, okay? <laughs> right now, okay? Right. But you think, Will, you ready to go ahead and start this revolution, baby? No. <laughs> <laughs> As he as, as as he so eloquently put it, I recognize that there is a cancer. <laughs> but for me, I'm gonna get this money while I can. <laughs> See that that honest way of coming at it is a first step. Yeah. <laughs> Yo, man, this was absolutely great, Frank. I can't tell you thank you enough for coming through, man. Um, please, if you have any events coming up, any products, I know you shared something very special with me earlier, but I don't know if you can put that in the universe yet. Um, but if you have anything else you can put out. All I can say is that there's a paperback edition of, of Afro-Pressman coming out in August, and I will be sending the um, the galleys of the book cover to my listserv when I get permission from the publisher uh, to, to do that. And it will cost uh, uh, $10 less than the hardback edition. Hey, $10 less. Now y'all got no excuse. Y'all got to buy a book now. Got no excuse at all now. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Listen. Thank you. Thank you. You you True. shared insight that I've never heard before. Um <laughs> and it was just it was it was a pleasure. It really was. I'm still scared. Very I'm scared. scared. I'm, I'm 65 and I'm scared. We you know, and that's the first step, admitting our fear. Because they will kill and they will kill you for no reason. Just to get the pleasure of it. Uh, listen, you don't have to keep going darker, though. <laughs> <laughs> I really do appreciate you, though, all the work you're doing, as well as other Afro pessimists. Like all this work has really opened my eyes to a lot of things, and like I said, just open your brain up to like, you know, what started me on this activist journey is like I keep telling, I tell Will all the time, like I don't want to, I want, I don't want his his daughter, which is my goddaughter to, you know, wake up 20 years old, 30 years old, still in the streets with her little fist up, still screaming Black Lives Matter and all this stuff. Like, I don't want to, but I kept thinking like, why is this, why are we having the same arguments, the same antagonisms, the same angst after all these years and centuries? Like, what is, what is the root of it all? And this really speaks a lot to that. So just thank you for the work that you're doing in general. Um, I hope, I feel like the audience will definitely learn something from this. Um, looking forward to the comments. I know it's going to be crazy, <laughs> but yes, thank you so much. But if you have any other, you have anything else you want to share as far as your products or events coming up? Uh, I don't, but if, if, uh, if people, um, I have a listserv and, and, uh, I guess there's two ways to, to deal with that. One is to go to my website. It's just my, my, my name with, with no, like Frank B. Wilderson. I, 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 the third, frankbwilderson3rd.com with nothing in between. And and you can, uh, there's a MailChimp uh, part that you can get onto the listserv, or you can just send me an email at, uh, and if you don't have my email, you can look it up on University of California Irvine website, but I'll give it to you now. F Wilders, F-W-I-L-D-E-R-S, F-W-I-L-D-E-R-S at uci.edu. And I'll add you to that. Um, and uh, I probably cannot friend any more Facebook people. I think I'm up about up close to 5,000. Uh, and I think they cut you off at 5,000. But I will definitely um, let people know about what's what's going on um, if they uh, give me their emails in that particular way. Perfect, 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 perfect. Uh, yeah, so Frank said, y'all too, he too popping for the Facebook, but on the list, we stand, stand in the hill. We'll help you out. Um, so this is the part where we shout out like any black woman just out here just doing the darn thing, being great, being wonderful. Uh, this week, this is a personal, this is a personal one for me. Um, this is a personal great friend of mine. I think Will's gonna be pulling up on the on the Zoom. Uh, her name is Marlanda DeKine, aka Sapient Soul. Uh, her pronouns are she, her, and they, them. So I'm gonna go back and forth. Mike, I am she's private. I, oh, yeah. that's right. That's right, man. My bad. All right, y'all look at the Instagram page and look around <laughs> <her> later. <laughs> My bad. I forgot about that. 
yeah, Marlanda, aka Sapient Soul, is a poet obsessed with ancestry, uh, memory, and the process of staying within one's own body. Uh, their work manifests as books, audio projects, and workshops, leaving spells and incantations for others to follow for themselves. Marlena has fought, has performed all over the South and has had her work published in Poetry and Emergence Magazine, just to name a couple. And well, this is what I'm really proud of her for. Her manuscript, Threshing Hole, was just picked up by Hub City Press, and it was the winner of the 2021 Southern Voices Poetry Prize. I'm so, so, so happy for her. Uh, this is an incredibly talented individual. Has helped me immensely with my artistic journey. Um, I did a Black Liberation Project over the, towards the beginning of the um, pandemic and stuff, because I was about to go crazy, because I was just locked in the house all the day. <laughs> and she was nice enough to give me books and like resources and just nothing but inspiration. Um, so if you want to look her up, uh, if she likes you enough, she'll accept you on Instagram. Her Instagram is MD Sapient Soul. That's MD Sapient Soul. Her Twitter is at the kind soul. And you can go to her website at https colon slash slash sapient soul dot square dot site. Uh, please check her out because she's super dope. Um, Frank, you know, you saw my outline. So you know, I had like a whole bunch of other stuff to ask you. We definitely got to get you back to do part two. Yeah. <laughs> whenever you get time. But this well, was whenever, I'll, be back. I'll be back whenever you want me. Fantastic, fam. Thank, thank you so much. Well, thank you so thank much. Thank you, Oh, listen, thank you. Like I'm telling you, this is like I was freaking out ever since I hit well up. I was like, you ain't gonna believe who I got on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for your time um, and knowledge. Thank y'all so much for tuning in. Please share this. This is one of my favorite. I know I say this every episode, but this is one of my favorite episodes that we ever done. And um, yeah, man, we'll see y'all next time. Love y'all. Peace. <laughs>